This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about four common causes of tax debt and what to do if you can't pay. So when you file an income tax return, it could be a financial win if you're expecting a refund. I know I've been in that place oh, every once in a while. Not very often, though, mm-hmm. right? Do you get a bunch of money back? But it's a happy day, right? You get the it check is. from the government. That's nice when they give you something back for a change, right? Absolutely. Now, the flip side of it, it can be pretty stressful if you're one of the thousands of Canadians who have unpaid tax debt. So that means I'm owing, right? Exactly. And Elaine, you know, the first thing I'd, I'd love for people to understand is not filing a return because you think you owe them money is the wrong decision. Um, so even if you owe the government money, they probably already know that. They generally have information from your employer or a bunch of information about you. And by not filing a return, you're actually in a worse situation than if you file a return and owe money. So oh. our piece of advice for everybody is always file your returns every year. This is fascinating to me that Canada Revenue Agency last year disclosed that nearly half of the unpaid billions of dollars of tax debt that they are owed is from individuals, mm-hmm. not companies, not large corporations, but just regular folks. Yeah, that was surprising to me. And I think if you asked even, you know, any financial expert, you know, hey, what do you think is the split of, you know, is it 80% owed by corporations? I thought it was 80, 90% of the tax that is owed by corporations, you know, who are deferring it or not paying or whatever. But no, it's 50-50. So um, CRA can see that there's a lot of folks who get behind on their taxes and it's something they can take aggressive means to collect on, which we'll definitely talk about either in this segment or in a future segment. But yeah, a lot of people in Canada, they end up owing the government money. So I think today's segment will be good to understand and, you know, why does that arise? Why do you end up owing money at the end of the year? Okay, you asked the question, why do we end up with so much tax debt? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and, and you know, this this segment, it comes from me seeing my clients and having them tell me, you know, I wish I had done this differently or wish I hadn't done this or it didn't work out the way that I had anticipated. And the number one thing I find that people find doesn't work out the way they thought is cashing in RRSPs. So people are cashing them in when they shouldn't or... What's well, the, what is that? Yeah. And just to make sure we're all on, on the same page. Please. So RRSPs are, you know, registered retirement savings yeah. plans. So these are the money that you can put away um, for your retirement. And then when you put it away, you get a tax deduction. It comes off of your income. Now, the challenge is that when you withdraw money from your RRSPs, those funds need to be added back to your income. And that can often trigger a balance owing. And the reason for that is when you withdraw your RRSPs, financial institutions, they will withhold a little bit of income tax, and it can vary a little bit from institution to institution and definitely from province to province, but very rarely is it enough because your bank, as much as they might be able to predict, they really don't know your marginal tax rate. So if you're calling, uh, cashing in RRSPs and your bank is withholding, let's say, 20% of the amount that you you withdrew, so you cash in 10000 you get 8000 they hold back 2000 to the government, and that might be less than 
than half of what you owe. If you're sitting in a 50% tax bracket, you might have to pay the government literally half of those RRSPs that you're cashing in, which a lot of folks don't think that far down the road. They're just trying to solve the immediate issue. Right. And then when they cash in the RRSPs, it's at tax time next year, they see, oh my God, I've got a balance owing. And sometimes they repeat the cycle again. They cash in more RRSPs to pay that balance and then end up owing more in the following year. Right. So never, I mean, can is it fair to say never a good idea to cash in your RRSP? Well, never is a tough thing because there might be some times when it makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. So, you know, let's think about if you've had really high income for a period of a few years, you've been in that 50% tax bracket, but then for this year, for whatever reason, you haven't been able to work, your income is really low. In those cases, pulling out your RRSPs might make a whole lot of sense okay. because probably you need the money to live, first off. But then second off, probably your tax rate is a lot lower because you're not in that, you haven't earned as much income, so right. you don't have to give as much to the government. So there are times when it makes sense, but I think one thing that I might put the never on, to, Elaine, just to give some certainty here, is let's say never cash in your RRSPs to pay debts unless you've spoken to a trustee first and you understand that these are actually protected assets. Exactly. And that's and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking. They're protected. And that was a, a surprise to me when I first learned that. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled on, on this show, Elaine, I think we've got some brilliant listeners out there that uh, fewer and fewer people are coming into my office and saying that they've cashed in their RRSPs. Good. Before we started doing the show, you know, one every couple of weeks, I'd be, you know, a little bit despondent internally and not trying to make the person feel too bad, no. but explaining to them, you know, you did something you didn't have to do. And it seems like word is finally getting out. You know, you can protect RRSPs. Yeah, it's an automatic reaction for sure. You're in debt. Where have I got some cash that That's I can right. get, disp- you know, so-called disposable income? That might be that might be what you think and then using it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so working multiple jobs. Yeah, definitely. This is probably the number two thing that I see causing people to go into tax debt. And it's a case of you're trying to do the right thing, uh, but sometimes it can come back to buy you. And what that can mean is in Vancouver, a lot of people need more than one income to make ends meet. Maybe they can't get full-time hours at one job uh, or even full-time hours aren't enough to pay, you know, rent and living expenses and things like that. Now, the challenge is when you sit down with your employer and you figure out what your average income is going to be and they set a certain amount to withhold your taxes, that's basically set up. You shouldn't have a balance owing if you only work that job. But when you add a second job, it's often the case that that second employer doesn't know anything about the first employer. Right. And the taxes they're going to withhold are assuming that this is the only income that you're going to have. And again, the more income in Canada you earn, the more on a percentage basis you have to give to the government. So it's very likely that that second job, even though you think you're adding to your income every month, at the end of the year, you might have a pretty significant tax bill because a bunch of that income should have been remitted to Revenue Canada. Got it. Okay. So the solution there is just to be transparent with both employers. So, you know, go to your new employer and say, you know what, here's my base income level from my day job or whatever other job. um, And here's the amount of tax I need to get withheld. And your employer will work with you. They'll hold back whatever it is. And let's say they hold back too much. Well, you've just got yourself a tax refund. Exactly. You give the government an interest-free loan, which we know is not great, but it's better than the alternative of actually having a balance to clear. Do you have any statistics in your in your head offhand about the number of people who uh, come to you for assistance who are self-employed? Like, is there sort of a percentage? I mean, there must be. Oh, yeah. It's, what it's, kind of percentage I'd is say it? it's probably between 20 and 30% of folks. It's, okay. So being self-employed yeah. is a significant uh, sort of category then of, as part of this. Oh, exactly, Elena. That, that's our third thing we're going to talk about today is just, just being self-employed. Um, you know, you really have to step into the shoes of CRA. You have to be your own 
accountant. You have to calculate the amount of income that you're going to earn. You have to forecast the amount of taxes you're going to have to pay. And ignorance, unfortunately, is not a not a defense. Not um, an excuse. CRA doesn't require you to have any education to be a, a small business owner, but they assume that you're going to know everything there is to know about remitting taxes and CPP and EI contributions and all of those things on a monthly basis. Um, so when you're self-employed, nobody's remitting those things on your behalf. So is there is there uh, like a, the number one best place to go to for information when you're self-employed to sort of make sure that that base is covered? You know, it, it's kind of funny, but I'd send you to CRA's website. Okay. Um, it's actually a great resource. Oh, they, they want people to comply. They want to be as helpful as they can. It's been amazing to me how easy it is to, you know, to set up an online access account. You can access your past year's tax returns, your tax slips, and things like that. Okay. So being self-employed, there's a ton of resources on CRA's website um, that will help you, you know, basically crack that nut and understand exactly what you need to do to be self-employed. Good. Um, you know, one thing that you've got to be careful of too um, is I meet with a lot of people that are self-employed, and they say, you know, I, I make lots of money, but just not enough to pay CRA. And oh dear. at the end of the day, that means that you're actually not making money yeah. because what you have to do is you can't treat these tax payments as discretionary, something that you can either do or not do. Um, you know. Physically, CRA is not going to come and take the money from you now, but they are going to come and take the money in a few years if they don't get these remittances on a regular basis. Yeah. So it is the case that if you're not able to pay CRA, pay yourself, pay your expenses, then you don't have a viable business, unfortunately. And that's a discussion, you know, it's a very gentle and delicate discussion you have to have with folks. And oftentimes there's ways to figure out what's going wrong with their business and how to fix it. But if the only way the business can survive is by deferring payments to CRA, um, it's really just you're delaying the inevitable, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, what about the GST, not remitting GST? And I and I know that that, well, I, I do know that that can cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. So GST, again, similar to, to well, when you're self-employed, is just another type of tax that you have to collect. And not everybody has to collect GST. So obviously, you know, speak to your accountant, your bookkeeper, your mileage may vary. But um, self-employed individuals who earn more than $30,000 in revenue are required to register with CRA and to get a GST number. And then once you've got that GST number, um, you've got to basically uh, withhold and remit uh, 5% of your sales back to to CRA. And you might do that annually, you might do it quarterly, you might even do it monthly. But at the end of the day, what you have to consider is that CRA is going to call those trust amounts, meaning that money that you're holding in trust for the government. And it can be so tempting, you know, if it's been a really tough month and you can barely pay the employees, but you've got a bunch of money sitting there getting ready to be remitted to CRA for GST, it can be really tempting to use those funds in operations. And just to think, you know, I'm going to use the money this month, but catch it up next month. I see that again and again with clients who, unfortunately, the next month is not what we thought and so on and so forth, and they can build up a big debt on GST, yeah. which is amongst the worst of the worst debts, unfortunately, to CRA because, again, they say it's trust money. It's money you were collecting from us. It's 5% on your sales. It wasn't your sales. It was just the taxes, and it's money that should have went directly back to CRA. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to I used to have to uh, collect GST on work that I did, and mm-hmm. uh, I was just merely, I was the flow through of the money, right? Yeah. I collected it That's and then exactly I had to pay it. It, it yep. was not my it was not mine to uh, not mine to spend. Yeah, and then just one other little point here, Elaine, and we encourage everyone to get, you know, good accounting and bookkeeping advice. But if you're making purchases in your business, you know, keep track of the GST that you're paying yes. because you are able to deduct that from the amounts that you have to remit to the government. So it's important to get both sides on it, the amount that you've collected, but also what you've paid on your purchases. Exactly. So can we cover this last part of it about what what do you do if you owe the government money or can we go there at this 
this moment? Yeah, I think we should give people some hope, right? Yes. We've been a little bit doom, doom and <laughs> gloom, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I get calls every single day. I had a call this morning uh, where the question was, you know, I owe all this money to the government, but my understanding is if I go through a bankruptcy or I do a proposal, the government comes out the other side, all of their debt survives. And that is the case in the U.S. It's not the case in Canada. Mm. So if you've got money owing to the government, even if it is for these trust amounts for GST, um, it's possible to make a deal in one of two ways. So one is if the balance is so great that even offering them, you know, a 20% repayment, a 30%, whatever like that, if that's not even possible, you could choose to file for personal bankruptcy. Any of our longtime listeners will know bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we're going to go through probably a bunch of that in in later segments here. Um, But a bankruptcy is one option. A better option or definitely something at least folks should try is to try to make a consumer proposal. You can do that on tax debt. You can do that on just about any consumer debt under the sun. You usually offer offer up in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt outstanding, no additional interest, and nobody can bother you while you make those reduced payments. Excellent. And I do want to mention as we as we close off this segment that uh, to come and see you, my first appointment to see you to sort of lay out my mm-hmm. situation, that is a free consultation. That Absolutely stands free. In a, so, yeah, yep. which is really important. And these guys, the, the whole team is just so knowledgeable and thoughtful and kind to, to sit down and go through all your stuff and then you can figure out which is the best option. Another great option for you is if you're not quite ready there to take that uh, that first appointment, uh, go to the website, sans-trustee.com. It's just filled with great information, all kinds of questions and answers uh, that you'll probably have. Or if you want to give them a call, it's easy. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So from bank loans to consumer proposals in Canada, there's a number of different ways a person can choose to consolidate their debt. And consolidation options can vary a lot. Before signing on to any debt consolidation program, there's a number of very key questions that you need to ask and they need that need to be evaluated. And it's important to be able to advocate for yourself as well as have, you know, your own sense of awareness of your rights and remedies. So let's talk about debt consolidation because mm-hmm. I know that it, what it means in Canada, or at least how it's advertised in Canada, is different than what we see in the United States when it comes to debt consolidation, right? And, mm-hmm. and the rules around it. Yeah, it, it's one of those terms where it's so attractive, right? Because um, at the end of the day, this is what a lot of people are looking for. Debt consolidation means that you're putting all of your debts together. So rather than having, you know, six or seven payments to juggle, different due dates, different interest rates, so on and so forth, you've got one payment that you're going to make each month. And then ideally, you've got one payment that's going to save you some money. So quite often with debt consolidation, there's either a lower interest rate or sometimes there's no interest depending on the options that you go with. But you really have to be careful. There's a number of questions that you need to ask of yourself, of the provider as well, to make sure that you're actually getting something that's going to solve the problem and making sure that you're aware of all the debt consolidation options that do exist that are out there. Yeah, and not the false information that we sometimes sort of that sticks to us better than the the actual facts. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So five questions. Uh, number one, who are you working with? 
Yeah. So as anyone would know from listening to our show, there's a number of different um, debt consolidation options and debt consolidation debt consolidation professionals, and they're not all created equal. Uh, so consumers need to be aware there's a whole lot of gray areas in the in the arena of debt management. And, you know, sometimes I get people calling in and saying, well, you know, why is this even allowed? Why are they allowed to advertise this way? Or why are they allowed to charge these interest rates? Which is a great and, question to be asking, oh, I think. Exactly. And I wish I had better op- better things to tell folks. I'm like, yeah. well, like, all I can say is that there's a severe lack of regulation. Financial products tend to innovate far quicker than the government's ability to regulate them, unfortunately, which you can see with cryptocurrencies and things like that well out ahead of what the government's actually able to manage. Absolutely. And now we're seeing some insolvencies, which unfortunately are, are hitting Canadians pretty hard here. Yeah. Um, so you want to know who you're working with. And, you know, there's there's a number of different avenues you can go through for debt consolidation. And you'd want to understand who's regulating each of these avenues. So first off, the most traditional way to consolidate debt is to approach your bank or your credit union. You know, you're often, you're in good hands. Typically at that point, you're not going to get, you know, um, your information stolen or things like that because banks and credit unions are regulated by the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada and they ensure compliance with consumer protection law. So if something, something happened and it went sideways with a bank or a credit union, you've got some recourse course there. So you don't need to have so many concerns. Um, If you're dealing with a debt repayment agent or a debt pooler, um, that's a term you might not be as as familiar with, but they often brand themselves as credit counselors, which we'll talk about in a second here. Uh, But they're overseen by the Consumer Protection Act of BC. So since about 2016, there's been some regulation there. All right. So it could be a bank, it could be a debt pooler. Um, Another is a credit counselor. Now, this is where I think there's there's huge amounts of lack of, or as huge lack of regulation mm-hmm. um, because there's no requirement on who is or who isn't a credit counselor. Anybody could start up a business tomorrow and say, hey, we're going to provide credit counseling services, and there's nobody to tell them that they can't do that. Okay. Where they do get regulated is if they start to put debts together and consolidate them in a debt pooler, but there's no regulation as a credit counselor. So if you get poor service from a credit counseling agency, you've got to hope the agency is going to deal with you fairly because there's really nowhere you can go beyond there to get your to get your problem solved. So it's Sounds like to avoid that altogether credit counseling altogether or credit counselor altogether? I mean, Well, I'd say have your eyes open. So okay. just, just be aware that if everything goes according to plan, you're fine. But if things don't go according to plan, you don't really have much recourse. So okay. be careful, do your research, know exactly who you're dealing with. And some credit counselors have been around, you know, for 20, 30 years, they're very reputable. If someone's just popped up in the last few months, I would think long and hard before I would, I would agree that they would have the ability to solve my problem. And you guys, a licensed insolvency trustee, now this is the biggest difference and Mm -hmm. something that I learned very soon when we first started doing this show was you guys are completely regulated. That's right. Federal law governs you and what you can do. Yeah, I'm overseen by Industry Canada. The Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy is one of the key bureaus within that ministry. Um, And every trustee in Canada, there's less than a thousand of us. We are heavily regulated. All of my trust accounts are audited regularly. My practice is reviewed, if not every year, every two years with a very detailed report of any anything that we need to deal with. So if you're dealing with a trustee, um, you're generally in good hands because the government's backing it. If something goes wrong, you've got a regulator you could we could basically correspond with and they would have the power to pull a trustee's license if there was something done untoward. So it's something we're very protective about because it's our ability to keep the business going. Yeah. And the other piece for me uh, about about a licensed insolvency trustee is that because you're so highly regulated that you're able to do things that no 
nobody else is mm-hmm. able to do. Negotiate terms of uh, either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal that nobody else can even touch. Exactly. And that yeah. kind of leads us into our second question here, Elaine, uh, which is, you know, you want to know who you're working with, but secondarily, what debts are being consolidated? Because as a trustee, we've got the power to consolidate just about every debt. So it could be government debt, it could be income taxes, it could be GST, it could be student loans, it could be a leased vehicle, for example, where you want to return the vehicle, but there's going to be some damages there at the end. Those items typically can only be dealt with with a trustee. The government's not going to work with a credit counselor or anybody else like that. Um, Sure, if a bank wants to pay off your tax debt for you as part of a consolidation, the government will take that money, but a government will not work with an agent other than a licensed insolvency trustee. So the next question is, how much is that going to cost? Because that's a big question for folks that are Mm -hmm. already struggling financially. Yeah, and that's the objective of debt consolidation is that you're going to actually save some money on a monthly basis. So instead of paying all these payments separately and high charges and all that, the idea is that when you consolidate, it's going to be at a lower cost. Mm-hmm. So typically, if someone's got credit card interest rate of, you know, 19, 20, 25 percent or something, uh, if they're able to get a consolidation loan through a bank, which can be difficult to do, they probably cut the, the interest rate in half. So, you know, you might be getting 10, 12 percent, something like that. So you'd want to make sure you can include that into your budget each month. Um, but you'd also want to understand, you know, are there other costs on top of that? Is there any administration or registration charges? Uh, what happens if you have to miss a payment or uh, postpone a payment or things like that. There can be a bunch of additional costs you'd want to look really closely at and see what you're paying to get this consolidation. And if I was to go to a licensed insolvency trustee to look after this, mm-hmm. do you explain that payments? Well, it's pretty straightforward. We figure out what can you afford to repay on your debts based on your budget, and there's no cost to you to use the trustee. So if we've determined that out of your $20,000 debt, you can afford to repay six or 7000 the trustee gets paid out of that repayment amount and the rest goes to your creditors. So it's a much different um, avenue than having to pay back all of the debt plus some additional charges on top. Good. So what else is in the fine print? I like that you included that as one of your questions. Yeah, something you really want to be careful about, especially if you're consolidating through a bank, is are they asking you to pledge any security, meaning any assets that you have, because then you're giving the bank the right to seize those assets if you don't pay off the consolidation? Or even more importantly, do they want somebody else to sign on the dotted line? Do they want a co-signer? We talk about co-signers a lot, and it's almost never a good idea to have somebody co-sign your debts, um, because it's not splitting the debt 50-50, you've just now made somebody else 100% responsible for your debts. And if things don't go according to plan, you've now enlarged your problem and given yourself a pretty tough emotional road to hoe. Um, you know, if you've got a co-signer, are they going to come after the co-signer, for example? Uh, would you lose an asset if you've pledged that? Um, you know, if it was a consumer proposal, what happens if you can't consider continue the proposal is essentially you're back to where you started. The debts come back, the creditors have their rights again, but nobody's showing up at your door seizing your assets. Um, you just tried something that didn't work. If any of this is resonating with you and you want to take some action, go see Blair and the staff at Sands & Associates. Uh, they've got also got a great website with lots of questions and answers on it. Sands-trustee.com is the website there. The phone number to get a free consultation, 1-800-661-3030 and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment is five ways to make your debt 
problem worse. So this is the list of all the things not to do. Yeah, this is how not to solve your financial <laughs> problems. So as attractive as some of these things might sound, these are the things when people call me and I explain the facts, they say, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm like, yeah, if you had known, maybe you wouldn't have wanted to do that. Yeah. And the surprising thing about this segment and the items in this segment is that you at first blush, you'd go, oh, that sounds like a good idea. That's right. Like, yes. why wouldn't I do that? Exactly. Sometimes, you know, common sense kicks in and it just, oh, of course, you know, I want to preserve my assets, but you don't realize there's some laws, some regulations, some things that can really make it more of a headache than what you think you're getting a benefit from doing. So the number one, transferring assets. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea, Blair. Well, let's let's think about this. So yeah, I have people calling me often. They say, you know, I've got a bunch of these debts and then I've got an asset. And, you know, let's say it's, you know, some savings or it's a piece of real estate or something like that. And they're saying, well, can't I just transfer that to my brother, my sister, my spouse, my kids, and, you know, then go bankrupt on, I've got no assets. They can't do anything to me. So we're protecting our assets by transferring Mm -hmm. them. That's right. So it sounds attractive and I can definitely understand, you know, you've seen something and maybe it's been piece of property has been in the family for a long time. It's only in your name, but you feel, you know, morally it's owned by everybody here. Um, But if you're in a situation where you're unable to pay your debts, the last thing you should be doing is transferring assets out of your name. And a couple reasons for it. Yeah, why? Because it... Yeah, well, first off, um, if you do sell an asset at undervalue, so this means if you're going to transfer an asset out of your name, as long as you get fair market value, nobody's ever going to have an issue with it. Mm. So, you know, if you've got a vehicle or some savings or a piece of real estate, you know, if you get it appraised, get a realtor evaluation, then you do a private transaction and you take the money and pay the debt, there's no issue. But the challenge is usually people want to transfer an asset out of their name for no money or for nominal consideration. A dollar love and affection, something like that, right? Um, And at the end of the day, you're actually creating a problem for yourself and for the person that you've transferred that asset to. um, Because from your point of view, um, you've now done what's called a fraudulent conveyance. And fraudulent is a bad word, and it doesn't mean you had any fraudulent intent. You know, you didn't have to intend to defraud anybody. But if the effect is that suddenly you were able to pay your debts with this asset, but now you're not able to pay your debts without it, then there's been a harm that's caused the people that you owe money to. They're now not going to get that paid back. So if you end up having to deal with your debts, if your creditors were to sue you to take you to court, for example, they could go and recover any property that you had transferred out to someone else's name. Um, If you were to file for bankruptcy, your trustee would have to do that. They would have to go and basically undo some of these transactions. So it can really cause a problem for you. So the flip side of it is that... You may not realize this, but a lot of your assets are protected. That's right, Elaine. So, you know, in the real estate example that we were talking about, there's an exemption for home equity in the province of BC. For each person that's on title, it's up to $12,000. So if you had a piece of property and maybe there's, you know, $15,000 of equity that's in there, um, if you hold on to that piece of property, if you had to go into bankruptcy, you're not having to give up all of your $15,000 of equity. The government allows you to keep $12,000 free and clear. And at that point, it's a $3,000 difference is what essentially you would have to pay to buy back that piece of property after your exempt value. Okay. So again, I know it it appeals to, to folks because you want to protect things, but you've got to realize that if you're not able to pay your debts without that property, you've got an obligation um, not to transfer assets out of your name um, until you get some really good legal advice. Again, there can be intricate situations. Sometimes assets are held in trust, but for the most part, speak to an expert before you start moving any assets around if it's a situation where you know you're not able to pay your debts. Now, this next one is kind of a no-brainer, uh, but 
it also is, you know, a, like a quick fix, right? You feel like mm-hmm. you're making a quick fix here yeah. using credit, using credit to pay that debt. Exactly. And this, almost everybody that I've seen, they do this for some period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's you get some money off of one card and you pay a minimum payment on another card, or maybe there's a balance transfer and you take advantage of that and then you live off the other card for a period of time. But all you're doing is you're just cycling through credit on a monthly basis. And the issue with credit is that there's interest costs on top of it. So right. your balances go up, 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 and then eventually there's nobody left to borrow from because you've maxed out on all of your credit cards. And then you turn to payday loans and eventually there's no payday loans. To, to borrow from as well. So right. it just becomes this vicious cycle that where it leads to is incredible amounts of stress. You moving money around like a, a day trader type of thing, just trying to make sure everything's going to fit on, on a monthly basis. And it generally, it doesn't lead to any, any happy outcome. You're just borrowing more on a monthly basis. And you know this because of all the people that you've helped over the, over the years who have done this kind of thing, thinking that they were doing the right thing, not wanting to... Um, you know, just in all the stuff that comes with being in debt, being embarrassed and ashamed and all that stuff. But folks do this and, and it's just a huge problem pickle as a result. And that's exactly right. Yeah, and oftentimes, again, you know what, what's going on. You can see um, on a long-term basis, hey, I'm not going to be able to do this forever because I'm going to run out of, cred- of room on my credit. So it becomes, you know, even a cause of depression and despondence that, you know, you just don't feel like there's any upside uh, when every month you go further and further into debt. Yeah. So if you find yourself, you're only able to cover your expenses by using credit or you're paying one minimum payment with a credit card advance from another, that's a huge warning sign of something. You're not solving the problem, you're making the problem worse at that point. And that's when you go to you. Ideally, yes. Yeah. So the third one, bringing in more borrowers. Mm-hmm. So getting somebody else to give you a hand. Yeah. So when you co-sign a debt with somebody else, now a lot of folks think, okay, we're just splitting the debt. You know, if it's a thousand dollar debt and you co-sign it, hey, the worst case, I'm on the hook for 500 because you're 50-50 liable. Right. That is not the case. No. Um, so it's what's called joint and several liability, which means if you co-sign that thousand dollar debt, uh, if the person doesn't pay, you're on the hook for the full thousand dollars, not just half of it. Um, so you've really got to be prepared that if you do bring in another borrower, uh, what we often say is you've now just enlarged the problem. You've now made somebody else a factor in your debt situation, um, and emotionally that can be very difficult, but also it can really stop you from taking the option that you probably should take because of the impact it's going to have on the other person. And what I mean by that is I meet with a lot of folks who are ready to do a consumer proposal. We're ready for them to pay off, you know, 30 cents on the dollar, everything's happy, but then we realize, oh my God, one of these debts is co-signed, and then the person can't proceed with the proposal because morally they feel obligated to keep this co-signer basically whole. They feel like they got to pay the co-signer back. Because if that person does a consumer proposal, I can make sure they've only got the responsibility to pay back the 30 cents on the dollar or whatever, but the bank is going to go to the co-signer and well within their rights to do so to demand 100% of the debt repaid. And that's sort of probably... The last thing you want is to impact the person who helped you out in the first place. That's it, right? They've done something nice for you. And, yeah. you know, when you've got that co-signed debt, you never thought you wouldn't be able to pay it back. But life can intervene and it can remove all of your flexibility to deal with your debts if you know that, again, mom or dad or brother, sister or friend is suddenly going to be on the hook for the debt that you just asked them to co-sign, you know, hoping that you would never have to need that. Now, you often uh, caution me when I use the word never, but mm-hmm. this is probably an okay place to use that word. You never want to get somebody to co-sign. Yeah, the way I say is, you know, when is it wise to co-sign for somebody else? 
Almost never. Almost never. You know, I could think, okay, if it's someone, it's their last year of school, um, you know they're going to be employed and they need you to co-sign on a small student line of credit. Okay, you know, maybe you take a little bit of a risk, but you know what you're signing on for. You know that you got to be prepared to pay that back 100 cents on the dollar. Yes. But in most other cases, it seems like a co-signer is sometimes brought in at the 11th hour. You know, the bank's willing to consolidate all of these debts. Oh, just the last thing they need is a co-signer. And it seems like, oh, this is just, you know, dotting the I, crossing the T, where fundamentally this has just changed that whole consolidation and removed all the risk from the bank if they've suddenly got another pocket to dig into. Right. And legally can do that. Exactly. It's not like they're doing anything bad or wrong. Nothing nefarious. They're well within their rights to do so. Yeah, and you signed on to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ignoring your debt. Number four. Yeah. Again, a lot of these things people will cycle through for a period of time. And, you know, it's human nature sometimes when the pain is just so great that we can bury our head in the sand, we can ignore things, um, you know, hoping that they get better on their own. And the challenge with money problems is unfortunately they don't get better, they get worse right? Because there's interest charges every month. There's often, um, you know, additional charges for missed payments or delinquency fees. And then suddenly they get the collection agents involved and some, it can be pretty tough to ignore them. So ignoring the problem is never a good idea. Uh, what you'd want to do um, is make sure you're opening your mail on a regular basis um, because sometimes your creditors will have taken steps to, to sue you or to take aggressive collection actions against you. And if you've got no idea about them, you know, talk about getting hit by a truck and, is the, and suddenly if your paycheck is going to be, you know, 30% lower than it was the day before because you didn't know that you were actually getting sued by your creditors. Got it. So you got to take a deep breath. Um, you know, sometimes I have clients bring in stacks of unopened mail to their first meeting with us. That's fine. I don't mind. I got a good letter opener. We'll go through it all and then we'll figure out what the problem is. But even having that stack of unopened mail, that can be just something that sits there and it intimidates you and it makes you feel bad and you know you're not, you know, fulfilling your responsibilities, but you just don't want to see the bad news. So ignoring the problem, never a good idea. It often gets worse. And most of the time, you know, I'd say actually all the time, people don't regret coming in to see a trust. They regret waiting. They say, why did I suffer for so long? Why did I let things get so bad? So uh, instead of ignoring it, just pick up the phone, give a trustee a call. You'll be happy you did so. Now, the last one is giving up. And I'm sure that you've talked to lots of people who have gone there. Mm Mm-hmm or at least dabbled in that pool of giving up, because it's a tough one. Yeah, money problems can be all-consuming. You know, depending on the, the type of person that you are, you know, sometimes most of your identity can be built into, you know, your financial stability or your job, your profession, and it's, if suddenly something happens, you know, you lose a job, you get sick, and your financial stability is gone, um, you can really feel hopeless for a period of time. Especially in this kind of society, in this, area, you know, corner of the world, mm-hmm. right? A lot of our stuff is tied up with who we are, what we do, how much money we make what we have oh exactly you know even from a senior citizen point of view sometimes a lot of their social life is you know going you know not to the casino for example but going to you know to a a social event or to a club or things like that where there's might be just a nominal cost but if you can't do that anymore well then there goes your social aspect as well so you know many different generations in life so you know what i would say to folks anybody listening is that you're not alone you know you've got to realize every year more than 120,000 people in canada work with a trustee to restructure their debts probably people in your life that you care about, that you respect completely, they've probably been through something like this. It's about one in 10 Canadians over the course of their lives is going to have a debt problem. And the less judgment we put on ourselves, you know, the better that we can even help others. Excellent. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add in this as we kind of wrap up? 
you know, I think we, we talk a lot, Elaine, about how important it is to really get the right advice at the right time. So, um, you know, making the call before you think you need the help is great. You know, even having a friend or family member to make an initial call for you and ask a couple questions is good. Um, I would say if you've got someone in your life that you can see is suffering, um, you know, just try to nudge them along a little bit. You know, people's pri- finances are very private typically, uh, but if someone starts to open up and say, hey, they're having a little bit of trouble, you know, making this payment or that payment, let them know that there is hope. They may have no idea a trustee exists. They may think that, you know, a trustee's job is just to judge them and make them feel bad. Well, the opposite is true. We're here to help. Yeah, and the and the staff at Sands and Associates. I mean, you uh, we hear it when we when we talk to a number of people uh, about their situations when they get resolved. That you know they were kind, they were thoughtful, they listened, they helped me get through it, and the end result was terrific. So uh, go to the website if you'd like. It's nice and easy. Sands trusteecom Lots of Q and A on there. Uh, frequently asked questions, or give them a call at one eight hundred six six one thirty thirty. Get that first free consultation as well. Find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this is interesting, Blair. New data says that we are not being very good or prompt as maybe or as prompt as we have been mm-hmm. in paying our credit card debt. Mm-hmm. And there's who is who's co- collecting this data? The folks that know Equifax. The Equifax. Credit, yeah, the credit rating agency. Interesting. So 2017, yeah. what did they say? So it was approximately 59% of Canadians in 2017, they paid off their credit credit card balances in full each month, which is the best practice, right? Carrying a balance on a credit card usually means there's something wrong. And it was good to see, okay, 59% of Canadians, they were paying everything off every month. That's huge. That's almost 60%. And uh-huh. that that's awesome. Yeah. But in the past year, that number has declined. So now it's down to 56%. So, you know, not huge change on a percentage basis. But if you think about it, that's a lot of people. That's tens of of thousands of Canadians who used to be able to pay it off every month who aren't. And, you know, that's getting closer to 50-50 where people are carrying balances as opposed to paying it off. Um, And the fact that consumer debt just continues to increase. So uh, consumer debt excluding mortgages went up by 5.2% in Vancouver last year, which was the highest amongst all Canadian cities. Canadian cities. And I want to point out, you said excluding mortgages. That's right. So this is for stuff? This is credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, everything other than a mortgage and a car loan, because sometimes okay, car people loans think... aren't included in that right. either. Okay. Sometimes people think, you know, well, in Vancouver, it's all the mortgage debt because the houses are worth sure, so much and all that's that. That's what but I no, thought. This excludes that. It excludes still, that. In Vancouver, it's a very expensive place to live. Any of our listeners are probably nodding their head and saying, yeah, what I have to pay, you know, for rent, for hydro, for um, meals, food, everything like that, Fuel it goes up. for my car. Exactly. Yeah. Most expensive in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so then we go to well what 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 do I pay or what can I afford to pay when I've got when I am paying my credit card back mm-hmm. and we've talked about this before but boy oh boy it's so worth repeating that minimum de- minimum payment number on the statement mm-hmm. is 
it just shouldn't be there. Should, they shouldn't be allowed to print that number. Yeah, if, if you're giving yourself solace or getting solace from someone else, they say, as long as you're paying the minimum, you're doing just fine. No, no, no you're no. not. <laughs> paying the minimum is a recipe for you being in debt for many, many years. Um, so how do minimum payments work? Let's spend a minute talking about that today, sure. Elaine. So uh, the amount of your required minimum payment, it's actually calculated differently depending on the lender and sometimes even between different products and cards at the same bank. Um, your credit score and your credit history can actually influence the interest rates and the credit cards that you're offered that might have different minimum payments. Didn't know that. So for the most part, minimum payments each month, they're somewhere between one to two and a half percent of the total account balance, which again, that's a wide variation there. It is. But also that might barely cover the interest charges that are accumulating. Um, I did some deep research on one large Canadian bank who shall remain nameless, but anybody who wants to look it up, they, they could see how, how minimum payments are calculated at each bank. Um, and the way that they do theirs is that $10 of the amount of the minimum payment that you make actually reduces the debt. The balance of it goes to pay the interest charges, the fees, the cost of it on the card. So if you're paying a $200 minimum payment, $190 of that is gone. $10 of it actually reduces the debt. Wow. And that's at one major Canadian bank. Wow. That's... That's disturbing almost. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'd almost use the word disgusting. That's that's crazy, right? Yeah, fair enough. Um, And when you see people and they bring in their credit card statements to me, um, you know, I've got some examples here. Um, A $1,000 balance on a credit card at 18% interest can take more than 10 years to pay off. If you're only paying the minimum payment. Only paying the minimums. And you could think $1,000, that could be gone, you know, overspending just a a few months, right? A a weekend or a vacation where you spent a little bit and you thought you could clear it. Okay, we'll pay that off over time. 10 years later, you could still be paying off thousand dollars. So that's just a thousand dollars. What about six thousand dollars? Six thousand dollars. If it was on a store credit card, you know, those ones are about the twenty nine point nine interest rates. Fifty three years. It's <laughs> crazy. Fifty three years, Elaine, and you can imagine you will have paid that debt over multiple, multiple times. The the store company is going to love you because of all the interest you paid them. Now, to their credit, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, credit card companies have to state that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not in a consistent place across um, every company or every card, but if you look hard, you'll find it on your statement. It's had to be there. So, you know, about the last seven, eight years now, uh, it will say, if you only make the minimum payments, here's how many years and months it will take you to get out of debt. That's a very sobering thing to look at. And I love it when clients call me saying, hey, I I looked at my credit card statement. I I saw what you were saying. And now I realize what I'm doing is not getting me ahead. It's just making the bank's money. It's preserving good credit. And that's a whole other segment here. You can preserve great credit just by making your minimum payments, but 53 years to pay off $6,000, preserving great credit is not worth that. Now, do you want to talk about the disclosure rules for credit card companies? Because it's just a, a little small uh, sentence here. Oh, that's but, just what we were mentioning about. Okay. Yeah, just All that, right. so that there's disclosure. No, just that specific thing, because I was mm-hmm. thinking, okay, is there something new here I need to pay attention to? Yeah, no, it's been around for a while no, now. No, that was a pretty big shift. And since then, you know, all the information is there for consumers, but again, it's not in the big bold. You know, what they're going to say is this is all you need to pay just to keep this thing going. Exactly. And that's usually what people are going to pay. So have you got some tips for folks using credit cards? Because one, we know they're incredibly uh, available to us, new ones, old ones, regardless. Have you got some tips? Yeah, a couple things. Um, you know, first off, if you can't pay the balance in full right away, obviously think twice before using the credit card. So understand, um, you know, your debt isn't what you're worth. It's, it's what you owe. It's actually working hmm. against you. So when you put something on the card, unless you can pay it off, um, you're really impacting your net worth negatively. But a couple things that I can see people get misdirected at um, is rewards programs.
them. So a lot of these great cards that are out there, they might be the Platinum this or the Travel that, you know, they might have what seems like a very good rewards program. And that might encourage you to charge a bit more than you normally would because, my God, I'm going to get some free flights out of this or free hotel rooms or things like that. But you've really got to look at the numbers. And I've done that. Um, Rewards programs are normally about 1% of what you spend. So if you spend $100 on the card, the value, so to speak, of those rewards that you're going to get back is about 1% to about a dollar back. If you spent that $100 on the card and you don't pay it off, you know, over the course of a year, you're going to pay about $24 in interest. So you got a $1 benefit and you paid $24 in cost for it over a year. That doesn't make any sense. Even in the space of a month, that $1 benefit, if you don't pay it off, the interest rate, again, on that $100 is about $2.40. So you're doubling the cost to get a reward. And again, all we see is the reward. We don't always see the cost, but be very, very careful with credit card rewards programs. It's a very easy way to run up your debts thinking that you're getting value, where the value that you're getting is quickly outweighed by the interest that you're paying. Okay. What about cash advances? Cash advances, just say no. Yeah, because <laughs> um, you know, I get offered that yeah. a lot on various cards. I get a Now, that's when you get the set of checks and well, all that. Well, there's a couple of things. Those ones are the balance transfer. So we'll talk about those too. So, okay. And they're not the, not all they're cracked up to be either. So on cash advances, the two quick things to keep in mind. So first off, the interest on a cash advance can be significantly higher than what you're paying on the cards sometimes as much as 10% higher. And the benefit of a credit card is normally you get those days of grace. You make the purchase, credit card bill comes in a couple of weeks, it's due a couple of weeks after. You yes. might have you know three or four weeks of interest-free money there. When you do a cash advance, from the moment you take out that money, you're paying interest. Okay. So really not great. And when you look at a balance transfer, Lynn, the issue there is there's often a transaction fee. Sometimes it's 1% or 2% is the transaction fee, so that can get expensive. Um, and then you will have to make sure, you know, the rate is going to save you to offset the transaction fee, but be very careful because there's a lot of things in the fine print yeah. about charges. I don't even read this stuff. I just, <laughs> and away they go. Don't touch them. Yeah, I think the last tip is to make your payments on time um, because if you think your interest rate is high now, just wait until you go delinquent because they've got a special interest rate at that point. And it's kind of funny if you're having trouble paying the debt now, why don't they jack up the interest rate and you'll be even more, have more difficulty to pay it. But that's often what happens. So if you don't make the payments on time, things can get even more expensive. Now, in our last minute or so, uh, let's talk about strategies to pay off the credit card debt. Yeah, let me talk about two ways to do it. So, you know, one is the idea of putting all of your debts on a single sheet of paper, making sure you cover the minimum payments, but then ranking them by highest interest cost first. And you've got to decide how much extra can I devote to my debt repayment each month and whatever extra you can devote beyond the minimum payments, put it against the highest interest rate first. So you want to knock off the one that's most expensive and then work on down the list. Okay. And that's assuming you're able to pay all your debts off in full. If that's not your situation, as any of our listeners would know, speak to a licensed insolvency trustee. We're pros at dealing with credit card debt. We can often reduce that very significantly doing a consumer proposal that does not require you to go into bankruptcy. Now, if you're wanting more information, go to the website sans-trustee.com. There's just a lot of uh, frequently asked questions and great responses on things that you can do now. Or if you want to go see someone, that's easy to do as well. I've got a 1-800 number here. It's 1-800-661-3030 to get that consultation as well as to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.